0: This morning, we find ourselves in 2 Samuel chapter 20, and so if you've brought your Bibles, you can open up there, but David is now king again, and at least momentarily, the kingdom is united under his leadership, though we saw last week that unity was tenuous at best. The northern tribes were really indignant that uh, Judah, the tribe of Judah, had initiated bringing David back to Jerusalem as king without them, causing them to be perceived as not being supportive of this, which, although that was true at one point, was still not how they wanted to be seen by the king. Uh, in fact, chapter nineteen tells us uh, left us rather we ended that chapter with clear signs that there is residual conflict and division between these two groups in verse forty three of chapter nineteen, we read, and the men of Israel." Understand in context when saying the men of Israel, it's speaking of those tribes north of Judah, what will eventually become the Northern Kingdom. Well, they answered the men of Judah and said, "We have ten shares in the king; therefore, we also have more right to David than you. Why then do you despise us? Were we not the first to advise bringing back our king? Yet the word of the men of Judah, the words rather, were fiercer." than the words of the men of Israel. So there's this seesawing back and forth that we saw uh, moving towards the end of chapter 19, arguing about who wanted David more after they'd nearly all supported Absalom's rebellion. And for David's part, he just wants peace and and to be able to move forward. And uh, whenever you have a, a climate of disunity and discontentment, Very often, someone will enter that void and encourage rebellion against leadership and the accepted order. And in today's chapter, in today's passage, we find such a man, someone who is going to seize on this struggle. David is going to have to confront him for the sake of unity, for peace in the kingdom. So today's passage, it focuses on this as we look at chapter 20, verses 1 through 26. Our message is titled, War and Peace, because what we'll find is that sometimes peace requires war. Not not always, but sometimes. It can require a leader to confront, but uh, it'll also require you and I to respond to the Holy Spirit to confront sin and pride in our own lives. And so as we move through chapter 20 and, and and look at these concepts, I want us to understand and recognize that there's application in the corporate sense to the body of Christ. And in terms of our, our relationships, it, it moves more to a, to a more intimate level where there's application in our own hearts and lives personally, where things have to be dealt with, not externally, not someone else's the problem, but me. How, how am I the problem? Conservative journalist and political commentator George Will, he once wrote of the unchecked rise of the Third Reich in the lead up to World War II. He writes, the lesson of Munich was, when it is necessary to confront an expansionist dictator, sooner is better than Later. As Douglas MacArthur said, in war, all tragedy can be summarized in two words, too late, too late perceiving, too late preparing for danger. King David, he's going to be confronted in today's chapter with a threat that he cannot linger in addressing as there's... There's a lesson we find here for you and I as well in the church and, again, in our personal lives. There are dangers and division that, left unaddressed, will only become more serious and pose greater problems and threats. Better to deal with it today. Peace often requires war. Unity, harmony with God and his people is sometimes preceded by a battle. So why don't we pray, and then we'll look at the first section of verses. Father, as we open your word this morning, God, as we speak to this idea, Lord God, of battling, God, internally and externally, that we might experience the peace Lord, the unity and the harmony that you desire with one another, God, with your spirit, and, and in the context of your people, we're praying that, Lord, you would show us, God, as we make our way through this passage, those ways in which you would have us to apply this truth to, your, to our lives, God, how, how you would want it, God, to be a, a, a lamp to our feet in the direction that you would call us to go. We ask that you would do this, Lord, in Jesus' name, Amen. So we'll get started here with just the first couple of verses as we're introduced to the rebel. That's our first point if you're following along with the outline. Verse 1, and there happened to be there a rebel whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. And he blew a trumpet and said, we have no share in David, nor do we have inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So every man of Israel departed David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri, but the men of Judah from the Jordan as far as Jerusalem remained loyal to their king. So into this volatile moment that we ended chapter 19 with, in which things really could have gone either way, uh, the, the tribes, that are on edge, the north and the south, they're suspicious of each other, offended, resentful. Well, Sheba, the rebel, inserts himself. A peacemaker could have helped resolve the, the dis- dissension between the northern and southern tribes and helped to bring about a, a unified nation. But instead, this Benjamite exploits the struggle and incites rebellion. But who is this man, Sheba, the son of Bickri? We, we really don't know a whole lot about him. We're not told a lot other than that he was of the tribe of Benjamin and the family of Bickri. So he was a loyalist to the house of Saul, and no doubt had wholeheartedly supported Absalom, both of which, of course, were themselves Benjamites. He said, we have no share in David, nor do we have inheritance in the son of Jesse, every man to his tent So Israel, that should sound familiar because it very closely tracks with, almost mimics the words of the northern tribes as they were wrestling back and forth with Judah It's this um, idea that David was king only of the south for those that lived around Jerusalem, Judah. But Israel... Israel knew, really, the whole of the nation did, that David was called by God to be king, that he'd been anointed to that end, that he would really always ruled in a judicious and fair manner. When you think about the various problems that David had, partiality toward one tribe or another was not one of them. Accusations, to the contrary, had more to do with uh, tribal bias and, and favoring the house of Benjamin and Israel's first royal family than it did any legitimate complaint against David ruling unfairly toward the north. These lies, they were unfounded. But David, he'd actually worked and sacrificed to unify the nation when you look at and think about um, his, his time as king prior to this moment. But despite all of this, many, though certainly not all, were swayed. And for the moment, there was a, a deserting again from the new king by some of those in tribes from the north. And so there's uh, not a, a full dividing of the country, but there's what we might call a fracturing or the beginning of a fracturing. Now, left unresponded to. This seemingly small rebellion could easily spiral out of control, especially given the national climate. It's it's not civil war yet, but that that's not outside the realm of the possible because it's already happened before. So David has to act. And of course, in other instances, David, he, he purposed to do nothing. We focused on that and, and even really praised that in David's life, his self-control, his patience with, with circumstances that challenged his leadership as king. But this is different. Sheba, unlike Saul or Absalom, who had, in a sense, a legitimate claim to the throne, and, and, and even in Saul's case, an absolute calling— Sheba was instead simply a rebel, a divisive man seeking to undermine the king and ultimately harm the nation. It was part of David's responsibility to deal with one like this. He had, Sheba had to be confronted for the sake of peace. In the New Testament, we we actually see this as well. It's full of apostolic confrontation, really, if you go all the way into the gospels, from Jesus himself into the book of Acts, and then into the epistles and the various letters. The leaders in in the church had no problem calling out those that were authors of problems in the company of God's people, whether it was heresy, uh, gossip, jealousies, or dissensions of some kind—we see it clearly dealt with. In some cases, individual names called and, and written about. The Bible it doesn't shy away from addressing head-on these uh, those sins that make for division and harm to the whole as well as the individual. In fact, we read in Titus chapter three, verse nine. But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and striving about the law, for they are unprofitable and and useless. Paul, he writes to Titus, and he says, hey, Titus, to that group of believers that you're dealing with and pastoring, it seems like some of them are allowing themselves to be distracted and consumed with all these ancillary issues, And and it's really becoming a problem. He goes further, and he says in verse 10, in fact, you have some there that would fall into this category. He says, reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition. You ever met someone like this? It's not that they just, you know, want to talk about something or they have a question. They thrive on on, uh, questions and points of which they essentially only know the correct answer, of which they are the only authority and have the right understanding of how it should be. Well, verse 11 says, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. There's a view of, of excessive patience with these kinds of people in the body of Christ that only leads to further problems. It is okay, and in fact, there is a mandate given in Scripture to deal with these kinds of things that we see in part modeled through David's leadership. In Paul's writings, he warned of specific individuals and publicly called others to repentance, sin, division, rebellion. They can't be ignored. And again, there's a personal responsibility here to take action. Paul, he writes to the Ephesians, and he calls it a circumspect walk that we're to have, the idea being a manner of living that's looking around outside of yourself, considering your life in light of the Word of God. And I want to be clear once again, as I mentioned as we got started, we're not just talking about you and I going, all right, who is it? Who's the problem? Let's find it. Well, we have to do the more painful exercise of looking in the mirror and saying, where is the problem in me? Because we are the problem at some point or another. We have to be willing to deal with ourselves and respond where God by His Holy Spirit would say, hey, tone it down. You're, you're, you're fixated on yourself and it's causing problems. Paul writes about it this way in verse 15 of Ephesians 5, "See that you walk circumspectly. Not, and I would I would insert there or help us to further understand soberly, humbly, looking outside of ourselves with more of a, a, a we might call it a global perspective. We're, we're looking around. Not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Are you willing to submit to others in the context of the body of Christ, or do you always have to be in charge? Do you always have to be the authority and the one calling the shots and the one who ultimately is correct? We're not to be a people who insist constantly on having our own way. Forbearing is another New Testament word that captures this idea. It's the abstaining from the enforcement of a right. Not looking to incite rebellion, but instead being a peacemaker. Because you're walking in and at peace with God. I feel like we could just pray and end it there. That's enough for this morning, but we're not done. So... We come now to verses three through seven where we, that's what we should do, right? You know, all of you that need to repent, just come forward and we'll just empty the place out. The next point is the king. So we move from the rebel to the king. Verse three, now David came to his house at Jerusalem and the king took the 10 women, his concubines whom uh, whom he had left to keep the house and put them in seclusion and supported them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up. To the day of their death, living in widowhood. Now, this is several chapters back, but you might remember when David's son Absalom first led a coup against his rule, against his father David. Well, he'd inquired of his senior advisor what he should do. And Ahithophel's advice was that he pitch a tent on the palace rooftop and lay with his father's concubines, which he did. And this was a vulgar and public way to assert dominance over the prior administration. It certainly wasn't something biblical, nor was having concubines to begin with, but we spoke about that at length previously. It was all a big mess, but what Ahithophel did, it was, uh, it was disgusting and meant to make a statement, um, which he certainly accomplished, but uh, it left these women, who are certainly caught in the middle Uh, as being victims, really, in a sense. They were defiled by Absalom. And so David certainly cannot go into them any longer. So he commits to providing for them in a separate house where they would then live out their days as widows. Now, on to dealing with the rebel, verses 4 through 7. And the king said to Amasa, we have to deal with this Sheba guy who is telling everybody, don't follow David. Assemble the men of Judah for me within three days and be present here yourself. So Amasa went to assemble the men of Judah. But he delayed longer than the time set, which David had appointed him. And David said to Abishai, who we might look at as next in the line of succession and leading the army, now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. He's had too much time. We need to deal with this immediately. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him." Lest he find for himself fortified cities and escape us. So, Joab's men with the Cherethites, the Pelethites, and all the mighty men went after him. And they went out of Jerusalem to pursue Sheba the son of Bikri. David has to deal with this Bikri guy who is threatening to divide the nation that's only beginning to heal. Sheba had no legitimate claim to the throne. He was simply a man seeking to trouble Israel. He was a rebel. Verse 4, the king said to Amasa, assemble the men of Judah for me within three days and be present here yourself. Now, David instructed this Amasa. Remember, this is the new commander of David's armies, but he previously served under Absalom who had made himself an enemy of peace, which... We've spoken to uh, it being somewhat of a strange choice, but really aligns with David's heart to unify. Here he took the general that had served under Absalom, David's enemy, though certainly also his son, and he said, I'm going to trust you with leading my armies as well because we are one nation. It was a bold step meant to communicate to the nation, the opposite of what Bikri was trying to convince everyone of. But that also made Amasa's job difficult. Because David said, I want you to go to all the men of Judah, those that were most faithful to David, and I want you to gather them together so you can lead them in battle against Sheba and track him down. Now, do you think David's most loyal followers of Judah might have trouble following a general that had served under Absalom, the man that they were just at war with only a short time ago. Yes, I think so. And I think that might account for part of the reason why David gave Amasa three days to get all these men together, and it took a little bit longer. It was a hard job and and a bit of a tough sell maybe for Amasa. Verse 6 we read... David was troubled by this delay, whatever the reason for it, because again, Sheba has had several days to make his way through the land and cause more harm. Well, to Abishai, he then said, who was the next in command, Abishai was Joab's brother. Now, Sheba the son of Bikri will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him lest he find for himself fortified cities and escape us. Well, the concern is that this rebel, he's going to get away and he's going to escape to a walled city where it's going to be increasingly difficult to capture and kill him. All the while, his cause is spreading through the north, increasing the chances of a more divided country and a full civil war. So David, he gets antsy about all of this and he calls up Abishai and he instructs him to lead the king's armies and pursue Sheba. Absalom again is brother to Joab, the former commander of David's armies, whom we believe was probably demoted after Joab got ahead of himself and killed Absalom when, remember, David had instructed him to spare him that he might try to talk some sense into him as we believe what probably was David's plan. Well, Joab has been sidelined. That leaves Abishai next. And so David calls him up and says, Abishai, I don't know where Amasa is, but we've got to deal with Sheba. Gather who you can. In fact, David commits to Abishai, sort of his royal guard, his special forces, you might say. And he says, go find Sheba. But unfortunately, although Joab was, excuse me, verse 7, so Joab's men with the Cherethites, the Pelethites, and all the mighty men went out after him and they went out of Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. All those names that we just read, those are those are those special soldiers that were dedicated to David. And so they go. Now, Even though Joab wasn't placed in charge, he asserts himself nonetheless and once again pursues his personal agenda over the king's instructions and he's found once again to be the murderer, which is our third point. Verse 8. When they were at the large stone, which is in Gibeon, Amasa came before them. Now, Joab was dressed in battle armor. On it was a belt with a sword fastened in its sheath at his hips. And as he was going forward, it fell out. So, this is actually only about five miles from Jerusalem. All this is taking place very close to the palace. Abishai has headed out with his group of soldiers And as he does so, as he makes his way into the city Gibeon and passes this particularly large rock that was noteworthy, now Amasa finally shows up with all the soldiers in Judah that David originally sent him out to go and get. Well, the two commanders see each other and they begin to approach one another. And we're given a little note here at the end of verse 8 that Joab... As he's with Abishai, he also is approaching Amasa. And his sword falls out of its sheath. That's important. Joab is not supposed to be in charge. But he's forcing himself into that position. Joab is a guy who struggled to humble himself. He struggled to take the the lesser position. He was always looking to push himself into the spotlight. And unfortunately, he also struggled with pushing his own agenda and his own plan over the kings and that of the kingdom. Well, Joab is frustrated that he's not in charge, that he's no longer commander. And I think he perceived that when and if he wanted to, he could assert himself over his brother Abishai. But Amasa, was different. That was going to require more aggression. Joab, he wanted to take his position of authority under the king back. And as he approached Amasa, the sword fell out of its sheath. And maybe it was by accident and, and maybe he helped it fall out a little bit. But something happens where as he does so, we read in verse 9 that Joab said to Amasa, are you in health, my brother? How are you doing? And really we get this, uh, this idea that he the sword drops, he He picks it up, and and maybe it's sort of not really visible here in his clothing. He's really focused on greeting Amasa. And as he does so, we're told that he he took Amasa by the beard, which sounds strange. But in this culture and time, as is still the case in some ways, it it was common when you would greet someone, you would kiss them on both cheeks. And so he comes in and and grabs, he doesn't grab the beard, but he grabs the beard tenderly, pulls him in close, but with his other hand, he has the sword. And in that moment, Amasa did not notice the sword that was in Joab's hand, and he struck him with it in the stomach. And his entrails poured out on the ground, and he did not strike him again. Thus, he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bikri. Wow, that's kind of graphic, isn't it? Um, and, And just disgusting. Joab, he comes in close, probably he has his sword in one hand that now he pulls out as he brings Amasa's face close to his and he goes to give him a kiss, but at the same time disembowels him. <laughs> if you skipped your cup of coffee this morning, there you go. That'll open your eyes up on a Sunday morning. Joab was a strong leader but he was a man of the flesh. Do you see that? Do you see as we've gotten to know Joab, as you, if maybe if you recall some of the incidents where we've, where we've seen him in action, there's times where you're kind of tempted and inclined to go, Good job. Somebody needed to say that. Somebody needed to do that. But we see that underlying there's a problem. Where Joab is continually falling back, leaning on his own understanding, leaning on the arm of the flesh, really asserting himself and his own kingdom and agenda over that of the kings and certainly over that of God's as well. And here we find, as he'd been guilty of before, Joab commits murder. And I know some of you might say, well, wait a minute, he's a soldier, this is war. There was no war declared against Amasa. These were were two commanders two leaders of the military on the same side. And although David was nervous about Sheba getting away, he didn't make an accusation about Amasa. We're only left to speculate. Is it possible that Amasa may have defected and gone over to Sheba? Was that part of David's concern? Well, maybe, but we don't know that for sure. What we do know for sure is that Joab was a man who did not like to share power. He's a man who did not like to give up his position, and he was not above murdering those who threatened his power. He'd done it with Abner previously, which at that time uh, threatened to divide the country again, and then he'd also done it with Absalom when he was specifically told by the king not to. And here for the third time, he's used the sword not to defend himself, not to defend justice, but to... Instead, assert himself and his own kingdom. He was a man after the flesh, and that weakened his effectiveness. You see, at first glance, men and women like this, we can tend to think, oh, they're a great leader. But then you look deeper and you watch them more closely, and you see, ooh, that, that's the flesh all over. A man, a woman who cannot follow direction. Cannot submit to others, cannot and will not lead well, and are themselves a liability to the work of God. Not an asset, as we imagine ourselves to be sometimes or others. I quoted previously from Paul's letter to Timothy where he outlines qualifications for a leader. Uh, he wrote similarly to Titus that such a man must be, uh, such. Uh, we could apply this uh, equally to um, women as well, Titus 1, six, blameless, he's speaking here specifically of the, the pastoral role, but the principles apply. They must be blameless, the husband of one life, wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not... Self-willed. Self-willed. A man or a woman who's to be used by God has to avoid this dangerous attribute as it speaks to a person who's neither led by the word of God or the spirit of God, but instead only their own appetites and purposes. So once again, we can work through this message and in the context of the church, the body of Christ, we can think of how the role of leadership, part of it is to watch for wolves, watch for dangerous, divisive people we just read previously in one of Paul's letters. But, but you see, at the same time, we recognize that there's an internal look that has to happen where God, by his spirit, would say, well, wait a minute, what about in you there's only room on the throne of our hearts for one King, and yet so often we're wrestling with forcing ourselves on that throne, aren't we? We're, we're, we're looking to push Jesus off of that throne and and seat ourselves there so that we can call the shots. You know. <laughs> Jesus, take the wheel, that, that song, right? I mean, some of us were like, you know, Jesus, you're good in the back seat. It's, it's okay. You know, I'm, I'm pretty good at this. I've figured it out. We've been doing this for a while. Feel free to take a nap. I've got things under control. And, and it, you know, take the wheel. What are you even doing touching the wheel? Just be over there on the... Some of you, you you live in a relationship where there's, you know, maybe a backseat driver or, you know, somebody on the side that's always telling you how to... You know, get, don't do that in your relationship with the Lord, All right. He knows what he's doing. He knows where he's going. Just trust him. A man or a woman who's to be used by God has to avoid the danger of self will. Verse 11, Meanwhile, one of Joab's men stood near Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, follow Joab. But Amasa, who's just been stabbed to death, wallowed in his own blood in the middle of... If we didn't get that before, here it is again. By the way, in case you forgot... Amasa's lying in the middle of the road, disemboweled, there you go, and he's in a pool of blood. Just thought I'd re-emphasize that, I'm sorry. And when the man saw that all the people stood still, you think, they're all going to stand still, uh, gaping and, and looking at what's just happened. Of course, he moved Amasa from the highway, that's nice, to the field, and threw a garment over him when he saw that everyone who came upon him halted. Verse 13, When he was removed from the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. So this is a dark scene. Um, Joab, he clearly stands out again as a murderer. And while it's possible that Amasa had abandoned his loyalty to David for Sheba, as we spoke about, you know, he was serving under Absalom for uh, that time. And, And it may be he was sympathetic to this guy Sheba, who's trying to tell everybody, don't submit to David. That's possible. Again, we're never told that directly. And Joab doesn't ask whether or not that's true. In fact, if that was happening, what he should have done was engage him in an honest fight like he would with an enemy. Call him out and say, how dare you defect from David and go out after Sheba? We're going to fight right now, Amasa. And then Amasa would have been able to say, you know, pound sand, come at me. Or what are you talking about? I didn't do that. These guys, it took some convincing to get them to come. But here we are. We're only, you know, a half a day late or whatever it was. But instead, Joab is sneaky. He pretends to greet and kiss Amasa but then uses that vulnerable moment to brutally kill him, after which we read about this graphic scene, um, and it's kind of gross, so we'll move on from that. Verse 11. Meanwhile, one of Joab's men... We're not moving on from it. Here it is again. Ah, we can't get away from it. Meanwhile, one of Joab's men stood over Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, follow Joab. So... One of the other uh, higher-ranking soldiers, we would assume, is standing there next to Amasa's body, and he says, we got to move on. This this guy, he's done. Whoever wants to serve David, rather, excuse me, Joab and David, this is where the battle's going. Let's go this way. And they're basically having to step over Amasa's body to keep marching forward to chase down Sheba. It's almost as though he's saying, if you don't want to end up like this guy, Follow Joab and David. And in true Joab style, he managed to name himself before the king. Isn't that interesting? Joab, oh yeah, and by the way, David. Eventually, though, this scene became too much, and as we read the soldier, he drags Amasa off and covers him up with some clothing. And once he removed him from the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bikri. And so the pursuit of Amasa continued. Now we'll stop and pray. No, I'm kidding. That would be a strange place to wait. I think it's important here to contrast Joab to David because it's easy to make the mistake of imagining that they're on equal moral footing, that Joab, he's only helping. He's simply doing what David was doing, weeding out an enemy of Israel. After all, think about it. David has just ordered the pursuit and and the elimination of Sheba. And Joab, he comes across Amasa and maybe he's just doing the best that he could in assessing the situation. But the problem was David was the king and Joab wasn't. David was dealing with threat against Israel's unity and the throne that God had established. Joab was fighting against a man who'd bruised his ego and taken his position. One was legitimately seeking to serve and honor God. The other was serving himself. Looking to remove anything that got in his way. Jesus confronted this attitude in his disciples. And I think for you and I, uh, Jeremiah writes that the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? And sometimes we need Jesus to divide in our own hearts to help us to know the difference. Well, in Luke 9, verse 52, we read that as they went, Jesus and his disciples, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him, that is the Samaritans, because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. Of course, the Jews and the Samaritans, they struggled against each other. And once they knew that Jesus and his disciples, they were headed for Jerusalem to worship, which was in contrast to the Samaritans in their form of worship. They they didn't want Jesus and his disciples there. And when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? James and and John, they're like, man, Jesus, these Samaritans, they're not rolling out the red carpet for us. In fact, they're giving us dirty looks. In fact, we're having a hard time tracking down a place where we can stay tonight. These Filthy Samaritans, why are we even here? You know what? We've seen you do some pretty powerful miracles, Jesus. And we're familiar with the Old Testament. And we know you're able to do this today. You want us to like, you know, do something like Elijah did and call fire down from heaven? I I bet that would really work to get these people's attention in, in a powerful way. But he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know the manner of spirit you are of. You don't know what spirit you're of, Jesus said to James and John. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. It's true that there are times when a battle, when a battle is necessary so that greater peace might be had. But we have to be certain that we're, we're being led by the Spirit of God and that our hearts are aligned with him. Joab's heart, it was set on Murder. And his own agenda, our God's, is on salvation. Verse 56, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. You know, sometimes in the body of Christ, we can, we can imagine ourselves to be acting righteously against someone that we perceive to be a problem. And so we come in with all guns blazing, A little bit like James and John saying to Jesus, you want us to call down fire from heaven except we don't bother to ask. We don't bother to pray and say, Lord, you you want me to do, we just do it. We call down fire and how many saints, how many of God's people of which Jesus would say, I didn't come to destroy their life, I came to save it. Have we stood in his place and wreaked destruction instead of been an instrument of healing and encouragement? We need to be very careful Because often in those situations, the problem lies in our hearts instead of with that person. Do they need to grow? Do they need correction? Sure, absolutely. But sometimes we're so excited about it because we want to see fire. We want to see somebody burn. It's time for God's judgment. We're supposed to be praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, heaven on earth. We want to see hell on earth now. Lord, just reveal your judgment and, and fire. And the reality is... We're chasing after our own kingdom and inflating our own ego. And it breaks the heart of God where Jesus says, wait a minute, it's, it's those who are ill that have need of a physician. That, that, would you represent me to them as someone that, that's come to help, not to hurt? John 3, 17, the Son of Man did not come into this world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. What's our motivation when fighting? Is it to see healing and restoration or to defeat our opponent, to satisfy a need to be right? If we can't tell for sure, we do far better to remain silent. Now, our last section of verses is 14 through 26, the siege and he went through all the tribes of Israel to Abel and Bethmaakah and all the Burites. So they gathered together and also went after Sheba. Abel and, and Bethmaakah, it's a good way above the Sea of Galilee, well over a hundred miles from Jerusalem. Then they came and besieged him and Abel of Beth and they cast up a siege mound around or against the city, and it stood by the rampart. And all the people who were with Joab battered the wall to throw it down. And so casting a siege wall would be be, uh, building up an earthen mound against um, the the fortified area, the, um, the main defensive center of the city that they might eventually break it down and enter to defeat it. Well, fearing a lengthy fight and the inevitable suffering of innocent people living in the city, someone intervenes. Sheba... He's hiding out in this city, Abel and Beth Maaka, and uh, in this area, this region. And somebody inside decides, wait a minute, uh, we didn't declare war against David or Joab or Abishai or anybody else. Verse 16, then a wise woman cried out from the city, hear, hear, please say to Joab, come nearby that I may speak with you. Somebody bring Joab to the wall. And when he had come near to her, the woman said, are you Joab? And he answered, I am. Then she said to him, Hear the words of your maidservant. And he answered, I'm listening. <laughs> so she spoke, saying, They used to talk in former times, saying, They shall surely seek guidance at Abel. And so they would end disputes. I am among the peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city and a mother in Israel. Why would you swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? This woman comes forward in the role and the capacity as a peacemaker. She looks at this situation and says, this doesn't need to go down this way. We're living in a city that historically is one where people would come for wisdom. This is a peace-loving place. And neither myself nor anyone else has called for war against the nation. Let's talk about this. What's going on here? You know what she's saying? This is going to end with me. This does not need to be division. This does not need to be a war. And Joab answered and said, Far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. (laughs) Joab, he sounds very conciliatory here. That is, unless your name happens to be Abner, Absalom, or Amasa, in which case, uh, I will swallow you up or destroy you. But right now, I'll be, you know, a nice, peace-loving, you know, hippie guy all of a sudden. Verse 21, that is not so, but a man from the mountains of Ephraim, Sheba the son of Bichri by name, has raised his hand against the king, against David. Deliver him only, and I will depart from this city. So the woman said to Joab, you wait right here. You want Sheba? Coming up. Watch, his head will be thrown to you over the wall. This is amazing. This lady, she's like, you know, wisdom and peace and love. And she's like, you want him? I'll go get his head, all right? Hang on a minute. So this lady, she's like head of the HOA or something over the city. She gets everybody together. Then the woman in her, maybe maybe you <laughs> live in a community with a board like this. I, uh, then the woman in her wisdom went to all the people, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. Then he blew a trumpet, and they withdrew from the city every man to his tent. So Joab returned to the king at Jerusalem. Problem solved. Now we'll close out the chapter with a review of David's cabinet, which really isn't too different from several chapters back. Verse 23, and Joab was over the army of Israel. Somehow he managed to regain that position through all of this. Uh, probably a mistake, but needless to say, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites. Adoram was in charge of revenue. Jehoshaphat, the son of Elihud, was recorder. Shiva was scribe. Zadok and Abiathar were the priests. And Ira the Jerite was a chief minister under David. Chapter 20 contains a lot of brutality, Uh, some of it justified and some of it not. Sometimes confrontation and a fight are the only way to bring peace, and other times they're just the work of the flesh. I appreciate this unnamed wise woman. She purposed that this conflict would end with her. How many times has that been the case with you? We're conflict, it's coming your way, it's threatening to pass through you, and, and you determine, no, uh, you, you're not going to retell this same thing you've been telling other people. I'm not going to give in to this. We don't have to be aggressive, but we, we can be gentle. We can say, you know what, this sounds like something we need to pray about. You know what, I'm not sure that this is exactly the right view of that. Maybe, maybe You know what, here's a novel idea. We should go to that person and talk to them, or better yet, you should yourself. She purposed that it would end with her. She wasn't going to contribute further to this. God's calling you and I to be a people willing to sacrifice and do what is necessary to make for peace and unity in the church and in our relationships. Maybe calling you to decapitate a friend. No, I'm just kidding. In the spirit of the Lord. We can be more gentle than that. We read in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore the spirit of the Lord... I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, excuse me, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. And verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's responsibility and a calling that we all bear. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all, and through all, and in you all. That work and a decision to be a peacemaker, to fight for peace, it it takes an intentionality, a choice to obey the Lord. Hebrews 12, verse 14, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Pastor Frankie and our worship team, why don't you come up and help us get ready to end our time together? But I'd like to close with the story of Telemachus. Maybe you've heard of him, a, a martyr from the fifth century. This account it was written by an unknown author, but it speaks of this monk who lived during that time. He felt God saying to him, "Go to Rome." He was, a cloister, he was cloistered in a, in a monastery uh, actually further east, but he put his possessions in a sack and set out for Rome. When he arrived in the city, people were thronging in the streets. He asked why all the excitement and was told that this was the day that the gladiators would be fighting and killing each other in the Colosseum, the day of games, the circus. He thought to himself, four centuries after Christ, and they are still killing each other for enjoyment. He ran to the Colosseum and heard the gladiators saying, Hail to Caesar, we die for Caesar. And he thought, This isn't right. He jumped over the railing and went out into the middle of the field, got between the two gladiators and held up his hands and said, In the name of Christ, forbear. The crowd protested and began to shout, Run him through, run him through. The gladi- gladiator came over and hit him in the stomach with the back of his sword. And it sent him sprawling in the sand. He got up again and said, In the name of Christ, forbear. The crowd continued to chant, Run him through. One gladiator came over and plunged his sword through the little monk's stomach, and he fell to the ground, which began to turn crimson with his blood. One last time he gasped out, In the name of Christ, forbear. A hush came over the 80,000 people in the Colosseum. Soon a man stood and left. Then another and more. And within minutes, all 80,000 had emptied out of the arena. That was believed to have been the last known gladiator contest ever. History actually records that January the 1st, 404 AD, was when the final game took place. Evidently, the emperor at that time, learning of these circumstances and this man's death, called for the ending of the games. And the martyrdom of Telemachus has been celebrated now for nearly 1,600 years. In the case of Telemachus, the one that had to die for peace to be achieved was himself. Very often, in fact, more often than not, the greater war that has to be waged for peace in our relationships and in the church is against ourselves and our own flesh. When you are, and I are willing to forbear to lay our lives down for others. Peace and unity, they're not far behind. Why don't we stand? Father, in speaking of this, we recognize Jesus. You laid your life down for us. You died that we might have peace, but we understand that you have called us to take up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow you. And I pray that you would help us in your spirit to walk in that self-denial, that death to me. Father, that your kingdom might come, that your will might be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, I pray that you would help us to trust you for that today. Lord, that, God, we would be a people that reflect the peace and the unity that you desire in and among your people in your kingdom. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.